Good afternoon and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-N-T.org. My co-host, Amba Gagarian, is away today. Uh, before we dive into our show, I'm happy to report that the beautiful new July print edition of the Independent hit the streets on Friday you can find it in our red and white news boxes in more than 60 public libraries, as well as cafes, independent bookstores, laundromats, and so on. You can also sign up for a, an annual subscription at independent.org and have every issue delivered straight to your mailbox, wherever you may be. Again, you can go to independent.org and find more info about that. Turning to today's show, we'll be talking about the Rent Guidelines Board, which meets tomorrow evening to vote on how high rents will be allowed to go up uh, this year and next for New York New York's nearly 1 million rent-stabilized apartments. Then we'll get an update on the just-completed state legislative session in Albany from Democratic Socialist State Senator Kristen Gonzalez. And in the second half of the show, we'll be speaking with John Tufel, the author of the cover story, in this month's Independent that takes a look at the completely broken process for how the NYPD disciplines, or not, officers accused of serious misconduct. John has followed the NYPD closely over the past 20 years, and he'll be sharing his thoughts with us uh, as well about the surprise resignation last week of Police Commissioner Kichant Sewell. But first, we turn to the Rent Guidelines Board. It meets tomorrow night at 7 p.m. at Hunter College in Manhattan. The nine-member board will vote on how high rents will be allowed to increase on one- and two-year leases for the city's 960,000 rent-stabilized apartments, which are home to roughly 2 million New Yorkers. This past Thursday, a rent guidelines board public hearing in downtown Brooklyn drew an overflow crowd of hundreds of tenants who urged the RGB to scrap proposed rent hikes of as much as 7% and either freeze rents or even roll them back. The independents Elsie Carson Holt and Owen Schacht were also there. Here's some of what tenants and their allies had to say. What keeps happening is the people that have lived there, the people that make it historical, you know, are moving, are being forced out. And this is permanent displacement. And our thing is about fighting the displacement and the systemic racism and white supremacy that is leading to our people being displaced. But the, the main piece of this is that no one can afford it. Even if it's 2%, 1%, that is still a hardship for so many people in New York. We can't afford to pay any more rent. We, we, we want to live our lives. We can't afford any kind of, you know, increase. We need a rollback. It has to happen. The rent board was supposed to protect us. It's shocking. I mean, the fact that they raised it last year, like one of the highest in like ages, and that was already stressful. I mean, my landlord, he didn't do anything for the increase either. And then to raise it again is just like, it's it's insanity. I mean, people are, I'm struggling. Right now, I'd like to be looking for more work because I need more money. Not being here. So. And it almost on like phasing us out in a sense, like moving us out almost, or pushing us out, doing this, and we are New York City, so I'm here to, to let my voice be heard, and hopefully that makes a difference. are going to face evictions. People cannot afford the apartments they have, and while we are sympathetic to some of the smaller owners, private equity firms are buying up and forcing people out of their apartments using unscrupulous means of harassment. That was tenants and their allies speaking at last Thursday's public hearing in downtown Brooklyn held by the Rent Guidelines Board. The first speaker was Imani Henry from Equality Flatbush. And we heard from the tenants, uh, Johanna Grease and Michelle, who uh, d did not want to give her last name. And the final speaker there was uh, Assembly Member Deborah Glick, who represents a district in lower Manhattan. 
Uh, so again, tomorrow at 7 p.m., the Rent Guidelines Board will meet to cast a final vote on what the annual rent increases will be for rent-stabilized tenants. The meeting will be held at Hunter College's Assembly Hall on East 69th Street between Park and Lexington Avenue. The venue was just uh, switched in the last week by the Rent Guidelines Board. Uh, the, the meeting was previously uh, scheduled for uh, Cooper Union's Great Hall, but it has been, again, moved to uh, Assembly Hall at uh, Hunter College on East 69th Street between Park and Lexington Avenue. Joining us now to preview tomorrow night's RGB meeting is the independent Stephen Wishnia. He's been the Indies housing correspondent for more than 20 years. He's also the longtime editor of Tenant Incolino newspaper published by the Met Council on Housing. Stephen, welcome to WBAI Radio. Hi, John. How you doing? Pretty good. So for starters, uh, can you describe a little bit exactly uh, what the RGB is and, and who sits on it and how they got there? Okay, it's a nine-member board that sets permissible increases for rent-stabilized apartments every year, you know, either for a you know, one-year lease renewal or a two-year lease renewal. It's got nine members who are appointed by the mayor, the chair serves at the mayor's pleasure. Uh, the others uh, have sort of overlapping terms. So usually within a couple of years, it takes a couple of years for an incoming mayor to switch the board to have his people there. And this is the year where you're going to, it's basically Adam's appointed board. Uh, there are five public members two tenant representatives, two landlord representatives. Typically what happens is the tenant representatives preserve, uh, propose something like a rent freeze or a 1% increase. Uh, that gets voted down seven to two. The landlord representatives propose something like a 10% increase with, you know, extra increases for low rent apartments and that gets voted down seven to two and then the public members propose you know something that's in between and that gets voted that gets approved by a five to four vote and can you describe the spectrum of uh, rent increases they've previously signaled they're willing to uh, contemplate well over the last 10 years instead of proposing a specific figure they've moved to proposing a range at the preliminary vote which is held in may so this year it's for a one-year lease it could be two to uh, two to five percent increase and for a two-year lease it would be four to seven percent i got it and um what what do you expect with the uh turnout tomorrow uh at that preliminary hearing in May, uh, the the crowd and some of the elected officials basically took over the stage, um, and, and there was certainly a, a strong turnout last week in in Brooklyn. What's your anticipation about how things may go tomorrow? I think there's likely to be a lot of people there. You know, whether you know moving it, you know, moving it to Hunter might make it harder for say. When they had it at Cooper Union, a couple dozen people from the Lower East Side could just walk over. Um, so it's a little harder to get to. I don't know that space, so I don't know how tight security has been. I know about you know, 10 or 15 years ago after people brought in noisemakers to a vote at a final vote at Cooper Union, they started making everybody go through a metal detector. Uh, right, the clanging cowbells. Yeah. Right. So, uh, um, right. They may be a, a little uptight after what happened in May with the takeover of the a stage. So, Steve, what's your assessment uh, overall of the impact of all the uh, public outpouring at, at both these uh, hearings and at a meeting like tomorrow night? How much does it uh, impact uh, what the Rent Guidelines Board ends up doing? I think it, well, it definitely keeps it from getting worse. Because if no, no tenant showed up, 
you know, then they'd be, oh, tenants aren't complaining. You know, we can raise rents as much as we, as much as the mayor wants or as much as the landlords are asking. Uh, how much effect it has, I don't know. Uh, a lot of people, especially the public members, tend to pride themselves on, tend to be kind of technocratic. You know, so they pride themselves on, oh, we are, you know, it's the attitude if both sides are angry at us, we must have done something right. I'm sure you've encountered that in journalism. You know, if you write a story that uh, gets both sides upset, then you must be fair. <laughs> right. Middle. Uh, so they tend to be, oh, we go by the numbers. We're not swayed by emotional arguments. So I don't know how much effect it has. You know, on the other hand, it's the, you know, one of the rare chances people have to present their case to someone who has power to give them a rent increase and to, you know, yell at the powers who are giving them rent increases. Right. And, um, uh, well, can you, uh, just talk a little bit more about the rent guidelines board. Um, uh, and, and, how responsive are they to the concerns of the mayor? He appoints them. Uh, are, are they that uh, uh, technocratically uh, separated from the political process? Uh, in, uh, if you ask people flat out, they would deny it. They'd say, oh, the mayor has no influence over us. Uh, the mayor would say, oh, I don't, I just appoint them. I can communicate with them, but I don't. I can't tell them what to do. I don't tell them what to do. In practice, uh, mayor often, you know, lets them know, you know, what's acceptable and what's not. Uh, so with de Blasio, you know, he pushed pretty hard for rent increase, for rent freeze, except for a couple of years where I think he felt that it was, oh, like, you know, let's give the landlords a bit of a break. Eric Adams is a lot more pro-landlord. Uh, one of the people he appointed as public members, as a public member, I uh, work is involved with the Manhattan Institute, which is you know really against rent controls in general. You know the Manhattan Institute for people who aren't familiar with it is a right-wing urban policy think tank. Uh, it's where the details of a lot of Rudy Giuliani's, you know, policies in policing and public assistance and housing came from. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, Adams is definitely more pro real estate and he buys into the, you know, the, oh, we have to protect the small landlords and there are not a lot rent-stabilized apartments owned by small landlords. If you're talking about people who own, like, you know, less than, you know, 10, 15 apartments, uh, you know, no apart, no buildings less than six units are covered. So it's not like, you know, somebody who has a two-family house or, you know, three-family house and is renting out the other two apartments in it is, you know, has to deal with rent stabilization. It's only for buildings that are six units or more, and the vast majority of them are owned by land, large landlords. I don't know how many, there aren't a lot of exact figures on it, but it's, you know, the vast majority are owned by large landlords. Right. All right. Well, we, we will be watching closely to see what happens at tomorrow night's meeting, both the, the vote that's cast by the Rent Guidelines Board and the public uh, uh, presence there. Uh, Stephen Wishnia, longtime housing correspondent for The Independent, thank you for joining us this evening on The Independent News Hour. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Okay, bye-bye. All right, we'll be back with more after this music break.
was Homeless Child by Minnie Ripperton. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor of the Independent. And our second segment, we're going to uh, talk about uh, what's been going on in Albany. The state Senate uh, recently adjourned um, after a busy uh five and a half months or so. And I spoke uh, recently with uh, State Senator Kristen Gonzalez. Uh, she's a Democratic Socialist who represents uh, the 59th District, which uh, covers the East River waterfront from Astoria down to Williamsburg and uh, part of the east side of uh, Manhattan, including uh, Stytown uh, on up to about East 40th Street. And uh, uh, Kristen is also the uh, youngest a woman to ever serve in the state Senate, 27 years old, and uh, I, I joined uh, a contingent of three Democratic Socialists in the state Senate this year. And I started uh, by asking her uh, what uh, surprised her the most about being a state senator once she was on the inside. I think what I hadn't anticipated is how condensed a six month legislative cycle can be. So, you know, when we started, we, our first fight was around, um, the court of appeals, which is the highest court in New York. And the governor had a nominee who, you know, Hector LaSalle, who didn't reflect our values as working class New Yorkers. And, um, that fight took, you know, the first month of session. And really when by the end of it, you know, when we had, successfully, um, you know, struck down the nominee, you know, uh, voted through, through the Senate and, and had the process restarting. We were suddenly in the beginning of the budget season. And so the budget is, you know, our central duty as legislators and, um, you know, the process there that I had heard of, but, you know, hearing about it and living and working through it is another thing, right? right. The process is such that you really do a lot of internal organizing and external organizing, right? So we, we do believe in that inside outside approach to get your priorities into your one house version of the budget. And what that means is that the state Senate has its own version of the budget. The assembly has its own version. And of course, uh, the executive, the governor has her version. And once those versions are finalized or proposed, then there are three way negotiations and those negotiations happen between the leader of the Senate, the Speaker of the Assembly, and the governor herself. Um, and so all of that happened very quickly. And while we were able to make really great strides in getting all of, you know, our values of the Sherpa values into the Senate One House as a state senator, you know, we had BPRA in there, the Bill Public Renewables Act. We had good cause language in there. Um, it was really through the, the three-way negotiations that took longer than they normally do because our budget was late by four weeks that then suddenly, you know, not only condensed the end of our session, but then also suddenly made it really urgent in the last month to fight for things that we didn't get through the budget. So I, you know, all of this to say, you know, those three phases of the legislative cycle happens very quickly. And I think what I've learned is that there's such an importance in us from day one, being clear about what our priorities are, clear about, you know, what we need to deliver and then, you know, organizing both on the inside and then mobilizing the ground um, and movement building to make sure that we, we don't lose any time. And we, we really hit the ground running. Right. And you, you ran as an eco-socialist and, and one of the big victories uh, for progressives and socialists of uh, this session was the inclusion of uh, build the build public renewables act, uh, much of its language in the, final state budget deal. Uh, your thoughts on the uh, impact of that, uh, what that victory means, as well as the campaign that yeah. had to be waged to uh, block the nomination of uh, Justin Driscoll to lead uh, the New York Power Authority, which is charged with implementing this uh, historic legislation, uh, someone that uh, you and others uh, harshly criticized. Absolutely. So, you know, just taking a step back for folks who, you know, may not be as familiar with the Bill Public Renewables Act or, you know, the New York Power Authority and, and, you know, what we're talking about, you know, broadly, climate is one of the 
one of the most urgent issues in my own district as, you know, I represent the waterfront on both sides, right? I represent waterfront in Queens and Brooklyn and then in Manhattan. And we know that climate is, you know, the climate crisis is here, right? We have to take action. And so a few years ago, the state legislature passed the CLCPA, um, which was an act that essentially, essentially said by 2030, 70% of our energy in New York State should be from renewable sources, um, because that is us actioning on climate and being very serious about reducing our emissions. Um, you know, we're only on a few percent wind and solar currently, so we're behind that goal. I think we're somewhere around, you know, 20 to 30 percent of the way there to the 70 percent. Um, but that's, you know, not enough. And so the Build Public Renewables Act was in response to that and said that in order to really achieve our goal of running on renewable energy, that, that you know, the, to really fulfill the bill and the promise that we passed already, we needed the New York Power Authority to be able to build and own and operate its own um, energy, renewable energy sources. So that's hence the idea of public power, publicly owned, publicly operated power. And um, it was a multi-year fight. So many organizers um, helped make this bill carried by Senator Parker, you know, come to fruition, get to the finish line. And this year we were able to get a version of our version of BPRA into our Senate one house. And what we noticed, and this is, I think, you know, goes into why this is such a significant win. It's not only because of the organizing and, and just, of course, the the impact of it has on climate itself, on taking action on climate. But when we got to the one house portion in the Senate version, we noticed it was very different from what the executive was asking for. So, for example, um, you know, we had very strong labor language um, because we believe that as we tra- transition to renewable energy in our version of the Bill Public Renewables Act, we wanted to ensure that labor was front and center. People were paid living wages. This was done in you know, conjunction with unions. That wasn't in the governor's version of it. Another example is a bill at a 2030 timeframe because of the CLCPA, but Governor Hochul's version said 2035 for phasing out peaker plants. Um, we also had in our version, like a mandate, a mandate to build. So not only that NYPA can do this, but NYPA has a mandate, has to do this, um, which was also not in the governor's version. And negotiations and organizing during that time were, you know, very tense. And ultimately we won on every one of those things. So, even with that last mile, right, of, of having, you know, possibly a version being pushed of the Bill Public Renewables Act that gutted some of the key provisions, we are really excited to say that we got over the hurdle of the last mile. We won our version. Um, and I'm really excited that now that the, it, it was passed through the budget, that we're going to see this implemented. Um, and then finally, you know, now that the New York Power Authority has the ability to build and own its own renewable energy, it matters who is running that authority, right? It matters that it's someone that we can trust who shares our values. And unfortunately, the governor put forward a nominee, Justin Driscoll, who had previously opposed the BPRA um, and who had represented a lot of corporate and oil interests in his career. So early on about him not being the right um, person to head the authority. And then finally, once we got to the budget season and we're in, you know, the portion of the legislative session where we were finally talking about nominees, um, and Justin Driscoll's nominee, nomination came up, we not only found more concerning information about him, about things like discrimination under his purview in, in NYPA, but we continued to organize and ultimately he did not get confirmed, um, and is now serving, continuing to serve as an acting, um, president for the New York Power Authority. Do you have a sense that his days are limited and that Governor Hochul will select someone else uh, more in line with uh, what the state Senate would like to see? So the reality is that if someone's in an acting role, there is no time limit on how long they could be in that role. So until the governor puts forward another nominee, you know, he is still in this role and we don't have the ability um, to change that. So, you know, I can't really speak to how long he'll be there, but without being a permanent figure, it does make it hard to do the job. And what we've seen is when other folks have been in acting role for years, they do eventually leave because it impacts their ability to, to get the job done. Right. 
And now um, another big issue uh, in Albany this uh, session was uh, housing, affordable housing, good cause eviction law, which would uh, give uh, uh, protections to millions of uh, tenants in New York State that currently have no uh, uh, tenant protections. Uh, it, but none of that uh, uh, came to pass. Uh, can you give your assessment of why there was no progress on uh, good cause eviction or uh, measures to increase the production of affordable housing in New York? Apologies, I was on mute. Um, <laughs> I Yes, yeah, so that's a great question. And I think it's one that we have to talk about. And I really want New Yorkers to be aware of because as you mentioned, we are in a housing crisis. So in addition to climate being one of our top priorities, housing was our other top priority. And, um, you know, what happened in the budget was we said if there were was a governor proposal to extend tax incentives for real estate, things like 421A and J51, things that, you know, myself, I ran against because um, we should not be giving public dollars to luxury real estate developers. Um, you know, if we were going to have that proposal, we also, and we needed to, and, and the governor wanted to, you know, have a mandate to build also new housing, that we have to have tenant protections. What is, you know, what is the point of having new um new units being built if they're unaffordable and if the tenants that move into them aren't, you know, safe and won't be able to stay there in the long term. And so uh, the good cause eviction bill was an effort to address that, um, not only from a tenant prote protection perspective, um, but it also said that New Yorkers had the right to renew their lease if you've been a good tenant, if you haven't broken any rules, and that your rent increase would be capped at, you know, the original version of the bill said 5% market rate, um, or 3%, the current, um, the current cost based on the current cost or of rent for a month, um, whichever was, was higher. Um, so, you know, it was a fair bill. And unfortunately, as things were being negotiated, as housing was being negotiated through the budget, there was no movement on either side. So it eventually got completely kicked out of the budget. In the after we passed the budget, in the last stretch of the legislative session, we had a um, work justice for all, Democratic Socialists, and you know the senator who carried good cause eviction, uh, Senator Julia Salazar. To their credit, they worked so hard to whip the votes. We had the votes we needed, um, but unfortunately, uh, you know this bill and this package um, and and that came from this working group was killed by Rebney, the Real Estate Board of New York, and the over half a million dollars they spent lobbying against it in that last month um, and getting the governor to oppose it. Right, but was it a mistake for the leadership of the Senate and the Assembly to not just go ahead and pass this uh, uh, omnibus housing legislation and, and uh, essentially uh, uh, force the governor to... Uh, either sign the the bill or take a deeply unpopular stance what, like why not uh why not yeah gain some um, leverage over her instead of just uh, uh deferring because she uh yeah she threw uh some shade on you of course so that's exactly what we were pushing for in that last week um that's exactly what i and others would have liked to see happen and even for members of, you know, at least I can speak from the Senate side, members of the conference who weren't initially supportive of good cause, who were part of the working group, they also were advocating for this to be passed, even in the face of a veto, to call the, on the governor to be the one to make that final decision and push her on it. Um, so it's exactly what we wanted to see happen. Um, I think, you know, this was a decision that was made um through uh, conversations between the governor, the leader, and the speaker. Um, so it, it is, they ultimately made the decision not to do that and, and put out a statement about the same, um, you know, the day of, but it, it is really disappointing. And I believe we should have, we should have absolutely passed that because as legislators, we have a responsibility to deliver on these crises and 
to not at least do our part of passing these bills was completely absolving ourselves of the responsibility that we have. And so I'm incredibly disappointed that we didn't do it. Right. And how will this go differently next year? I mean, how do you uh, sort of break this uh, culture of uh, deference uh, toward the governor that still seems to exist in Albany? Um, that's a great, uh, another, you know, another really good question. Um, I don't know. And I, I don't think that's for me to, you know, just, or me to answer on my own. I think what we believe in is having a coalition. We believe in mass organizing and mass movement building. So how we change our, um, strategy, how we learn from this session and go forward and fighting for housing next year will be something for us, you know, collectively, our organizers collectively to talk about over the, over the summer. And, and, um, I'm looking forward to, you know, we're already having those conversations, looking forward to ha- continuing to have those conversations and looking forward to, you know, in January, hitting the ground running and really fighting with my comrades to, um, to win the tenant protections that we need. Okay. And one other area where you were uh, busy uh, as a legislator was, uh, uh shepherding some, uh, tech, uh, themed legislation. You have a, a background in tech yourself. Uh, can you talk about, uh, uh, what you were able to pass and why it was important to you in the, in the area, I think of tech, uh, privacy and other things like that? Yeah. So I, I was really excited to receive, um, chair womanship, I guess, of <laughs> the, uh, Senate's Internet and Technology Committee. And so in addition to all of the movement bills that we talked about so far, things like EPRA, like housing, you know, our, our secondary focus was applying a socialist lens to technology. And that meant not only having hard conversations around privacy protections, but also around things like cybersecurity. Um, because we've seen an increase in ransomware attacks in not only municipalities across the state, but even on things like uh, institutions like hospitals, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so when these attacks happen and breaches happen, they actually end up hurting some of the most marginalized New Yorkers. You take a look at the network of, of One Health Brooklyn hospitals. They were completely kicked offline and had to work off of paper for a week, which affected, you know, not only the incredible frontline workers, doctors, nurses who were trying to provide the best care for their patients, but of course, really affected low-income um, black and brown New Yorkers. And, and uh, last of all, uh, before we have to go here, uh, so the session is done for the year. You, I mean, there's uh, almost six months uh, remaining in 2023. Uh, wh- what kind of work will you be doing uh, the the rest of the year when the legislature is out of session? I, my impression is, at least for some um, uh, legislators, the the second half of the year is sort of a time to uh, kick back and relax or uh, pursue <laughs> other um, matters of concern to them. Uh, how are you going to approach this time? Yeah. You know, what I've noticed is, yes, for some, that may be the case. But for our socialists in office, it's actually the opposite. We really kick things into gear in the second half of the year. And we focus on base building. We focus on, um, you know, communicating in, out in all of our districts what the fights are and preparing for the organizing effort for the next legislative session. So there's still a ton of work to do. And, you know, I'm really proud to be part of an organization that really uses is intentional about doing it and uses this time um to do it so i'm going to be you know working on that and then
That that was Gorilla Radio by Rage Against the Machine. Uh, before that, uh, you heard an interview with uh, State Senator Kristen Gonzalez uh, with the Independent News Hour about the recently concluded legislative session in Albany. Um, in a minute, we're going to uh, talk with our third uh, uh, guest for the day, John Tufel, about uh some very important matters with the New York Police Department. Uh, but before we uh, go to that, I just want to uh, remind everyone that WBAI is a community listener-sponsored radio station. It's been on the air for 63 years because of the support of listeners like yourself for shows like the Independent News Hour and so many other uh, excellent shows uh, that are carried on this station. You can support WBAI by calling 212 209 2950. Uh, Again, that's 212-209-2950. Or you can uh, pull out the plastic and go to give number two, wbai.org. You can make a, a one-time contribution or even better, sign up to become a WBAI buddy and do it in the name of the Independent News Hour. Uh, Again, 212-209-2950 or give number two, WBAI.org. You can make a one-time contribution or become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month. Get all sorts of excellent benefits. If you do it, do it in the name of the Independent News Hour. Uh, we enjoy being with you uh, every week, uh, 5 to 6 p.m. on uh, WBAI. And uh, also just want to remind you there's uh, some more great shows coming this evening Uh There'll be a half-hour edition of Democracy Now! from 6 to 6.30 p.m., Interpersonal Update with Harriet Fraud Wolf at 6.30 to 7, and then Revolutions Per Minute uh, by the um, folks at the Democratic Socialists of America chapter here in New York from 7 to 8 p.m., Out FM, 8 to 9 p.m., Cat Radio Cafe from 9 to 10 p.m., and The Sweet Spot from 10 p.m. to midnight. So, uh, so much great uh, news, public affairs, and cultural programming right here on WBAI. Uh, you know, when you give $25, 50 $100, whatever you can give, it, it keeps the station on the air, keeps the antenna uh, and the transmitter uh, over the, uh, working over at uh, Four Times Square, where we have our signal beaming out across the New York City region, and it's all made possible by the support of listeners like yourself. We don't have big corporate sponsors. We don't have billionaire backers. We have you. All right. Thank you for your support. And now we'll move to our third uh, and final segment for today. So uh, our our next guest, John Tufel, uh, uh, he's an attorney who has followed the workings of the NYPD closely uh, for over 20 years. Um in, in his youth, he worked at the Civilian Complaint Review Board and has done more uh, important litigating since then. Won a, a, a big lawsuit several years ago that forced the NYPD to divulge a lot of its uh, disciplinary records. It's been a huge help to activists trying to hold the NYPD accountable. And in his cover story uh, for the new issue of The Independent, uh, the headline reads, Inside Cop Court, How the NYPD's Internal Trial for Two Killer Cops Became a Theater of the Absurd. John was there every day uh, during this departmental trial that the NYPD held for uh, two officers uh, implicated in the uh, killing of a, a Bronx man in his kitchen. Um, and so we're going to talk about that in a minute. And we also want to talk about what's going on at the NYPD with the departure of their police commissioner, uh, a surprise announcement last week. Uh, John Tufel, welcome back to the Independent News Hour. Thank you, John. So good to be here, as always. Yes. So before we get to uh, talking about uh, your really uh, remarkable cover story in this month's issue, uh, the the big news from last week: uh, Commissioner, Police Commissioner Kichant Sewell uh, resigning, headed out the door. What's your take on this? What's going on over at the police department? Yeah, it's pretty wild, right? Um, I mean, I don't have any inside scoop on this. I just know what I've read, but it certainly is a lot of tea. It's a lot like it really, the NYPD is pouring it hot, as the kids say. Um, it's been really interesting. I mean, the timing of this is, is, uh, 
I don't know. It's very suggestive because uh, just a couple of weeks prior, you know, Sewell came out and uh, basically it was reported that she wanted to punish Jeffrey Madry, who is the third highest ranking uh, officer in the NYPD uh, for his decision to void an arrest of an officer that he was friends with, who had chased a bunch of kids through a neighborhood, uh, allegedly while holding his gun. And uh, the CCRB had recommended that Madry lose some vacation time. And Sewell said, uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. And Madry, we know, is tight with Eric Adams. And what I find interesting here uh, is that when Sewell made this decision that she was going to punish Madry, that she was going to, to go with what the CCRB had recommended, she had to have known that this was going to be something that was highly controversial. Um, she knows how powerful Madry is. He has a long career in the NYPD. Uh, he is very close with Eric Adams. Uh, and, you know, she decided to do it anyway. And, I mean, even think about just... The, you know, we all have jobs, right? Even think about how her and Madri, she was the first ranking or is the first ranking in the department. Madri is the third highest ranking. And just think about the awkwardness there that she is publicly punishing him in such a manner. And so she must have known that this was going to be a very uh, controversial thing for her to do. And she did it anyway. And, you know, the reporting on this is kind of said that it, this, this, very well could have been part of it, but it was a lot of things that she had tried to promote certain individuals. Eric Adams wouldn't allow it. Um, there was a controversy that she wanted to uh, keep a requirement that officers have to run a mile and a half in 14 minutes, which, listen, I don't know if I could do that, but I am also a heavy smoker. I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's that crazy to require us to do that, but she wanted to keep that in place. And, uh, Eric Adams agreed with uh, the training officer to get rid of that requirement. So she was being undermined, you know, left and right. Uh, it sounds like, um, I don't know. The reporting has seemed to indicate that Adams and Philip Banks, who has a very, um, spotty and kind of corrupt or corrupt adjacent history um, are the ones running this department. And so whoever is going to be the next police commissioner is going to have to take that job, knowing that they're just going to be a figurehead and that they are not the real uh, person running this department, that they can show up to events, you know, do whatever the NYPD equivalent of cutting a ribbon is. And that's that. And Eric Adams will run this department as the former police officer that he is. So, I mean, it really can, is uh, clean up after the robot dogs. Right, exactly. Clean up after the robot dogs. You know, one thing that was, I think the Daily News reported this, was that, you know, it really does feel like there are hard feelings here on both sides. I mean, Sewell showed up at a at an NYPD LGBTQ pride event, which you should see how uh, hard I'm rolling my eyes at that right now, but had uh, showed up at an NYPD pride event. Yeah, let us not forget that pride began... Uh, with a riot against the NYPD. Right, exactly. I mean, please, yeah, please spare me the NYPD pride events. Please spare me the cars that have the rainbow on them. Um, but regardless, so she showed up and she stayed in the back of the room. Leadership was at the front. Uh, I believe Madry was there. Banks was there and everybody ignored her. Everyone gave her the cold shoulder. Uh, and she left shortly thereafter. Um, so, I mean, and she also did not mention the mayor in her uh, resignation statement. So everything I can see here, you know, it, it indicates that there are hard feelings. And I'm sure Eric Adams was blindsided by this. And, you know, I mean, he's lost a lot of high ranking people in his administration. It seems as though he's very difficult to work for. Perhaps that should not be surprising as he seems to be out of his mind. So, uh, you know, it is what it is. It's just another resignation in Eric Adams administration. So a lot of chaos happening there. Right. Now, uh, during her time uh, as police commissioner, uh, Kichant Sewell in general was very, um, how should we say, uh, a lax around uh, police discipline. I mean, she overruled the CCRB uh, uh, more than 
any of her recent uh, police commissioner predecessors. Uh, and uh, speaking of the CCRB, a very controversial case that Sewell was going to have to uh, uh, resolve until her resignation uh, unfolded uh, recently in a departmental trial in the uh, police killing of Kowalski uh, Trawek five years ago uh, in his apartment in the Bronx. Uh, Can you just briefly describe uh, the the original incident, how these two police officers uh, uh, broke down the door to Trawick's apartment, even though they didn't have any search warrant, and uh, he was dead in his own kitchen uh, in less than two minutes? Yeah, it's awful. Um, the incident itself is a bit complicated, but I'll try to just make it, um, I'll try to really boil it down. But, and there is video of a lot of this, which, you know, I linked to it in my article and it's an awful, awful video, but, um, you know, you should watch it if you're interested in seeing what happened. But effectively what happened is, uh, Mr. Trawick, who, you know, is a black, was a black man and a gay man, um, was in his apartment. He was cooking. He locked himself out of his apartment. He, uh, went down and knocked on the door of, uh, his super who lived in the building. His super's, they're actually his super's office. Sorry. So, uh, the super said he couldn't help him get back into his apartment. Um, the super, called 911 and said that he was being uh, harassed by Mr. Trawick. Uh, Mr. Trawick called the FDNY. Um, he did say, and I mean, I'll just, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm not apologizing for anyone here, but he did say that his apartment was uh, either on fire or could be on fire soon because he had been cooking. Uh, and the FDNY showed up. Um, they let him back into his apartment. He went inside, and that was it. I mean, should he have said that the there was a fire? Probably not, but it's irrelevant, as we'll soon find out. So uh, he went into his apartment, shut the door. He's back in. That's it. Incident over. The police, two officers, Brendan Thompson and Herbert Davis, showed up shortly thereafter, Um they did not speak to the firefighters. They were just there responding to this alleged harassment uh, that occurred. That was uh, the result of the call from the superintendent. So they go to the door. They push the door open. So right off the bat, you've got no search warrant. You've got no arrest warrant. You did not see an individual commit a crime. You really don't even have reasonable suspicion to make an arrest, much less uh, probable cause. So you are, um, and these officers chose to push this door open. Now, Trawick was in his kitchen. He looks at the officers, as I believe most of us would do. He starts asking what they are doing there. What are you doing in my apartment? What's going on here? The officers, Mr. Trawick is holding a knife at the time, which, by the way, is not a crime to hold a knife. I'm in my home right now, and there's a bunch of knives in the kitchen. You are allowed to hold a knife in your kitchen. The officers start telling him, drop the knife, drop the knife. He starts, he keeps saying, what are you doing here? Why are you in my apartment? Why are you entering my apartment? Now, again, I, this is going long. I, I understand. So let me cut this to the chase. Thompson, the officer Thompson, decides to tase Trollick. Uh, the other officer, Davis, tells him not to tase him, says no. Thompson does it anyway. Trollick falls to the ground, shoots up again after being tased, is freaking out at this point, terrified, as I think anyone would be, runs to the back of his apartment, runs back into his kitchen, uh, uh, Thompson, I want to get, I want to be very careful. Thompson pulls his gun. Again, Davis says, no, no, no. Goes so far as to hold his hand in front of the gun, in front of Thompson's gun, indicating, do not shoot this man. He shoots him four times. Uh, a bullet went through Mr. Trog's heart and he bled out on the floor of his own apartment. The officers went into the hallway. They did not render medical aid. They did not try to assist Mr. Thompson. They called uh, their supervisors. And this, by the way, is caught on camera. A supervisor shows up and asks who was shot. 
both of the officers in unison, like puppets, say, nobody, just a perp, which what a heartless way to think about this. So the CCRB charged them with an unlawful entry, excessive force, and a failure to render medical aid. And that was the trial that I attended, the disciplinary trial. Right. And uh, um, uh, Officer uh, Thompson, the one who uh, pulled the trigger, uh, he was uh, the younger of the two officers, and he was white, and uh, Herbert Davis was um, a 16-year veteran of the force. He was black. So you yes. kind of have the... The, the trigger happy younger white cop who was the one who, uh, um, fired the deadly shots. But of course they both, um, chose to enter this apartment and at no point just d- decided, uh, that they should just close the door and go away. Um, exactly. unfortunately we are down to our final minute, but oh. real quickly, the, the, the most uh, amazing part of your story is uh, at the point of the trial in which officer Davis, the cop who did not who the cop who tried to uh prevent the shooting uh, uh admitted on the stand that they had made a number of mistakes and, and oh, basically yes. sounded like he was about to throw his partner under the bus and that and, and was gonna um disregard the blue wall of silence <clears throat> the blue wall of silence to come clean on what had happened. Can you quickly yes uh, john i yeah i'll be very quick but it was a shocking moment in that uh i don't even want to call it a courtroom uh that administrative procedure room but yes uh davis while he was on the stand admitted admitted that they should not have tased him and admitted that they should not have shot him that it was a mistake to shoot mr trollick and there was an audible gasp in that room uh, when he admitted that. We broke for a bathroom break shortly thereafter, came back in about 10, 15 minutes. He's back on the stand. When questioning resumed, he took it all back. He said, no, it wasn't a mistake. So CCRB, I mean, the gasp was even more audible that second time. It was even louder. He had breached the blue wall of silence, admitted that they had made a mistake, which clearly, if you watch this video, Davis did not want this young man shot and and did not want this young man tased even. So his testimony in that sense was not much of a surprise. But what was surprising was, first of all, that he was willing to admit it, and second of all, that he took it back on the stand in front of everybody. And frankly, and I'll just say this, because I know we have to go, I'm a little annoyed that I'm the only one who has been covering this. I mean, this really should have been a bigger story. ProPublica, to their credit, Eric Umansky did a great piece, but this is huge. This guy, Davis, admits to killing someone, admits that his partner killed someone in error. You know, a life was lost here and then takes it back on the stand. And we're supposed to trust this system. I mean, it is really absurd, really egregious. And, you know, I hope more people talk about this as we await the final verdict on whether these cops will lose their job or not, which both of them should, even Davis. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there for now with John Tufel. Uh, Thank you for joining us uh, this evening on the Independent News Hour. I encourage everyone uh, to read his cover article in this month's independent inside cop court, how the NYPD's internal trial for two killer cops became a theater of the absurd. You can pick up the print edition at many venues around the city, including our red and white news boxes. And you can find it online at independent.org. We have to go now and thank our board operator, Reggie Johnson. Also, uh, Amu Gagarian, Elsie, and Owen Schock. We'll be back next week.
WBAI's 2023 Local Station Board election is here, and we invite you to participate. Join or renew your membership by June 30th to vote or run as a candidate. Make a minimum donation of $25 by calling 212-209-2950 or visit wbai.wedidit.it to become a BAI buddy today. Make sure to give your email to receive your e-ballot. For more information, visit elections.pacifica.org. There you will find the voter guide, candidate nomination package, and nominator registration. Candidate nomination packets must be completed by June 30th. Any questions or concerns? Contact the Pacifica Radio National Election Supervisor by emailing nes at pacifica.org or leaving a voicemail on 213-635-9363. Thanks very much. It's 99.5 FM, WBAI in New York and online at WBAI.org. people we got a special invitation for you all you need to do is grab your dancing shoes and join wbai and afrobeat radio for an evening of west african music funk jazz and soul as we go live with othello's lounge from lagos the musical capital of nigeria going down Thursday, June 22nd from 7 to 11 at SOB's downtown Manhattan. It's going to be an Afrobeat celebration to benefit none other than WBAI Radio. All you have to do for tickets is call 212-209-2950 and ask for those SOB tickets or go to give to WBAI.org. We can't wait to see you there. Tune to Hi-Fi, WBAI 99.5 on your FM dial, New York. Okay, this is Joe Franklin broadcasting on radio station WBAI. It's 99.5% all-natural and preservative-free. WBAI-FM in New York. I love this radio station. Across the country, we're witnessing an unprecedented number of bills that attack LGBTQ rights. That's threatening the strides that have been achieved in the half century since the Stonewall Uprising. Join me, Jeff Simmons, and my co-host, Carlos Menchaca, for our annual Pride Month special, when we'll explore that landscape. We want to hear your stories, too. What you think it will take to make equality a reality for the LGBTQ community. Sunday, June 25th, starting at 8 in the morning, through noon, only on WBAI. WBAI accepts snowmobiles. If you have a snowmobile, we want it. We also want any extra cars, trucks, SUVs, RVs, boats, and more. Any reason is a good reason to give a vehicle to WBAI. Some do it to avoid the hassles of selling. Some like to skip the costs of repairing, while others just enjoy the good feelings of giving back to their community. But no matter your reason, donating a vehicle to WBAI is a great idea. And it's easy. Here's how it works. Simply call 866-WBAI-CAR. That's 866-922-4227. Or give online at wbai.org slash donate your car. Our vehicle donor support team will arrange your free pickup. When the driver arrives to tow away your great gift, you'll receive a donation receipt. Vehicle donations have the potential to drive hundreds and sometimes even thousands of dollars to WBAI. Call 866-WBAI-CAR or visit WBAI.org slash donate your car. Hey, this is Shaka Khan, and you're listening to WBAI New York, 99.5 FM. WBAI 